Welcome to the Project on the Rocks podcast, where we bring you stories from the Project and Agile community, as well as inspirational learnings from leaders in the space. This podcast is in partnership with the Black Dog Institute, who aim to create a mentally healthier world for everyone. If you wish to support the cause, please donate via the link below. Hello, uh, today's guest is Graham Cooper. He is the head of Agile practice at ING. Um, he's an experienced coach. He really knows what he's talking about. Um, I think you'll get a true sense of that when you listen to him speak. He's clearly very passionate. He knows what he's doing. I think he's probably one of the more kind of forward-thinking coaches that I know. Um, I really think you'll love the episode. He's an amazing speaker. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Well, mate, thanks so much for, for jumping on. Tell you what we can do. As a starting point, because I know you, I've worked with you for a little while. We've had conversations over the past six months, seven months, whatever it may be. Um, but obviously our listeners don't. Yes. Um, and so as a means of them getting to know you, I thought we could maybe do some quick fire questions. Excellent. All right. Having to do quick fire questions. Cool. All right. So let's start with, where were you born? I was actually born in Sydney. Were you? And you've lived here all your life or you moved around? I've moved around, but I can't, I've been back in Sydney for a long time. I, I'm, I'm not very transient, I'd say. Yeah, that's good. Um, <laughs> all right, and what is your current job? Currently, I'm the Agile Practice Lead at ING Bank. Lovely. And um, what's the best job you've ever had? And you don't need to say it's your current one. That's a cop-out. Yeah, no, no, I wouldn't say that. Um, The best job I ever had, I reckon, was probably the chief chief technical officer at Solution 6. Nice. Brilliant. Um, And on the flip side, what's the worst job you've ever had? I was once, um, for a very short period of time, and and I'm I'm ashamed to say that I left the organisation and did not claim my my final paycheck, but I was actually working at at a place... At a debt collection agency. Were you? Were you? Yes, I was a debt collector. I was once a debt collector on the phones trying to collect debt from from poor people who had no propensity to pay. Oh, no, I was so I... disappointed with myself that I just left. Uh, I can't imagine you doing that at all. You must be the <laughs> very most... very long time ago, and I was much younger. Debt collector <laughs> that has ever been. Um, all right, that's fair enough. At least you walked away. Um, <laughs> no limits to your imagination. What would your dream job be? My dream job. My dream job would be probably building a company that helped other companies succeed. Mm. Okay. Okay. Um, favorite band or musician? Favorite bands. Uh, I'm, I'm of a certain generation, and my favorite <laughs> band is, in fact, Pink Floyd. Is it? I think my dad's favourite band is Pink Floyd as well. Oh, don't say that. That makes you sound <laughs> even older, mate. <laughs> no, no, you're okay to a bit of Pink Floyd, I think. I, I don't and can't because my dad used to play it all the time and I thought he was very uncool, so therefore yes, I, I avoided it. Um, but maybe I'll come around to it. I don't know. I don't think you will. Yeah. <laughs> um, what are you currently watching on Netflix or other streaming service? So what am I currently watching on Netflix? Uh, so at the moment I'm strangely watching um oh i keep thinking the west wing but it's not it's house of cards which oh, i've yeah. never watched when it was popular and, and now I've, I've become watching 
an actor who's been very discredited and um, for very good reason. But um, I, I'm fascinated by House of Cards. Is it? You know, is it it's, is it a compelling viewing? It's really good. Yeah, apart from the last series, the last season. I haven't got it to the last season, right. so no, no spoilers coming. No, no spoilers. No spoilers. <laughs> well, I think the only person I could possibly have it spoiled is you now. I think yeah, everybody I else has seen it. Um, <laughs> beer or wine? Ooh. Beer or wine? See, for me, that's a really tough one because I've always said to people, I don't like I don't like beer, therefore I drink low carb beer. So I tend to drink um, super dry, oh, a beer you? disliked by most people. But mm. I quite like wine, but I tend to drink scotch. Oh, really? You're a scotch man? Yes. Right. Fair enough. You can have option C. Um, <laughs> and then final question: Which actor would play you in a movie about your life? <sighs> Oh. oh, given the current circumstances, it's probably Johnny Depp. Yeah. <laughs> and you were like to say that. Is that cool? I don't know. <laughs> I don't think that's very cool at all. <laughs> um, all right, lovely. Thanks for that, mate. That's really good. Um, I was going to go with George Clooney because I wanted to look like him, but I you don't can know. Have, you can have George Clooney if you want. You can have anyone. It's your movie. <laughs> um, all right, so you... Um, a seasoned agile professional, let's say. You obviously <laughs> didn't just wake up and become that. There's been a bit of a story. There's been a bit of a journey. And I think your yours, to me, seems like it's a relatively non-traditional journey. Yeah. So, so tell me a little bit about that. So I'm 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 a late bloomer in many ways for many reasons. So I went to university to study biomedical science. Never got into that. Um, at various stages, I've done all sorts of things. I've been a, a commercial diver. I've been a car salesman. I've worked in the insurance industry. I've been a recruiter. As I say, I've been a debt collector at one stage for a yep. short period of time. Um, I was My road into technology was via being a courier driver for a large bank, in, moving from data center to their head office in the city. Um, and weirdly, because I had been to university, they decided that I should help them look after look after technology mainframes until I couldn't. Mm. And um, then I set me down a path. I was with a partner who was an advocate of me learning more stuff. And I'm an avid learner of things. So I've done all sorts of weird things. Ended up in technology and software development. Um, I declared myself a software architect once I read the book on software architecture in 1996. Uh, which is quite funny because software architects didn't exist. So yeah. I was quite capable of walking into the CEO at the time saying, Michael, this is this is what I do and this is the title I should have. <laughs> uh, and then that progressed into various things. I became a CTO of Solution 6 after being a consulting software architect at Deloitte. Um, that translated into being part of the management buyout of Solution 6 for the enterprise software, which became Adderant. I was there for almost six years. Mm -hmm. Then I went to another software company as CTO. Along the way, I got dragged kicking and screaming to Agile in oh, 2004, I think it was, where oh, Kiwis so. dragged me to, to Agile. I was yeah. very traditional. I, I actually, I was once a certified rational unified process trainer. Uh, <laughs> so I was very much in one camp and, and I got dragged kicking and screaming because I had a vested interest in the success of Adderant. So dragged along became 
So 2004. Passionate about agile and and the actual financial benefits of not doing things in a traditional way and, and trusting good quality people to deliver outcomes because they understood how. And then that translated into a strange relationship where I ended up consulting to a large organization where I was dragged in and I declared myself an agile coach pretty much within a week of doing this consulting job. Uh, <laughs> the term agile coach didn't exist at the time, really. Lisa Adkins, this is pre Lisa Adkins book. So there's a, like, what is an agile coach? Oh, well, I just read about it online. I think that's what I do. So that's what I am. Um, I can remember at the same organization, um, because I was a consultant, I, I employed my um, manager at that time. Part of my role was to go and employ a director of Agile for this large organization, and we found a really great lady. And um, on the very first day, I was actually doing some workshops down in Adelaide. She rings me up, she says, oh, Graham, um, I'm just starting today. This is really strange. You interviewed me, but I noticed that you report to me now. How does that work? I said, well, you tell me what you want me to do, and occasionally I might do it. <laughs> That is a bizarre circumstance. I don't think I've ever worked with anybody who's had to hire their boss. Well, I did that twice at the same company because then we were growing and I didn't want to fill that role. And so we employed another guy who sat between me and her. And uh-huh. um, and I'm good friends with that guy as well. And he joined and, and he once again, he became my manager and I kept doing what I do, which is agile coaching. Yeah, nice. Interesting. <laughs> and so it kind of... It feels like in the in the sort of more recent part of your career, it's been a relatively organic sort of thing, save for that initial kicking and screaming, being dragged at Agile in, in 2004. Yeah. What's kept you in that space? Because it seems like you've you've stuck there, right? And whilst you've done a lot of other things previously, this seems to be the thing that has kept you in place almost. So I think what's kept me in place is that I really enjoy the coattails of really good people. I love to ride on the wave of other people's success. Mm. And agile coaching is like that. It's actually about helping others realize their potential. I'm kind of at that point where I feel as though I, I kind of got to a point where I was happy with where, where I ended up at and didn't feel the need to go above. I never wanted to be a CEO or anything like that. Um, climbing the corporate ladder was not something I'm that interested in. Mm-hmm. But seeing other people reach their potential can be very, very rewarding. And as an agile coach, that's one of the, the great benefits that we get is that we get to see the, the, the good, the bad and the absolutely tremendous people. And the funny thing is they're often the same person. Yeah, right. Of course. Is it, um, like I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head there in terms of what, what it is to be an agile coach. Is it a thankless task in that regard? Well, I mean, the old adage is is when the players are doing well, everyone congratulates the players, and when the players are performing badly, you blame the coach. <laughs> I come from the sporting right. background yeah. once upon a time as well, and um, and in agile coaching, that's largely true as well. But it's also true for good reason, because most agile coaches are entrusted with a strange amount of influence. We often have knowledge in areas that is not actually that technically sound. So a lot of Agile is about concepts that are constantly changing. Agile is just this massive umbrella term. And if you think about it, so it's made up of various things. So there's aspects of organizational psychology, there's aspects of lean, there's aspects of of software delivery agility. There's aspects of um, things like beyond budgeting. 
So all these different diaspora come together to create this umbrella that agile coaches get to play around with. Yeah. And so because of that, we have this kind of privileged position where we can actually talk to people about aspects and provide information without being an absolute expert on anything. Yeah, I like it. Um, do you think do you think the term agile has been diluted? So it covers a lot anyway. It kind of, I feel like, and you can correct me and, or tell me what you think, in the last three or four years, it's just the biggest buzzword or it certainly was a buzzword for a long time there. A lot of lip service. Is it still what it was? Has it been diluted? Do people know what it is? I, I think the problem for any of these terms, and the same applies to the term waterfall. Mm. I mean, I love to talk to people about the, the fact that the term waterfall comes from Royce's thesis in the late 60s, where he describes a mechanism for developing small pieces of software, but it could never be applied to large software projects at IBM. And yet this became the buzzword for all large software project delivery throughout the 80s and 90s. Agile has kind of gone down the same path of becoming a word that could galvanize people, but now is discredited because there's lots of failure. And the reality is that because it is just an umbrella term, that failure, every failure is associated with something or someone. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes very easy where when an organization or a group of people decide that they're agile, and they speak about themselves as agile, when they have a failure, then it becomes agile's failure. But the reality is that that things fail for a range of reasons. Agile is an umbrella term for a change in approach, a change in behavior and a mental model that is different to a traditional mental model and behavior. But both have failures. My view is that agile has more potential to succeed given support and circumstances. Right. But it can't succeed as anything cannot succeed when there's poor behavior, when the goal is really not well understood when there's lots of friction between how you actually get to an end point and how you're going to get there. It's a system and systems require things to align. And quite often we do agile in one part of a business, but we don't recognize that the other parts have a massive influence on an outcome. And then we go, oh, this agile thing doesn't work, but it's like, is it the agile thing? Was it the traditional thing? Who knows what that thing was? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I don't find a lot of organizations, and, and my experience is obviously not really relevant because I'm only one in seven and a half billion people today. So I never talk about experience because it's not really relevant. But what I have seen is only that in general, agility in the corporates I've worked with tends to be diluted because there's lots of different frictions that come from right. a journey. And so is that if there was pure agility within a business, perhaps you could avoid some of that, right? Yeah, that's right. I, I think that the reason why large organizations look at smaller organizations go, but of course, it's so much easier to do this in a smaller organization. If you think sure. of the, the lunacy of that, because here we are a big organization with much more resource, a lot more talented individuals. And yet we look at a small organization and go, of course, they can do that better. That's insanity. But no, the reality is the actually, small yeah. organization doesn't have all these friction pieces around it because you can galvanize 100 people to all walk in the same direction. When you've got 1,800 people or 50,000 people, it's really hard to get them to walk Good point. even roughly in the same direction. Yeah. And so now in your role, then, as 
so you, you've kind of, you know, you're more senior now. You agile practice lead. Is that your official? Not, not my, well, actually, to be correct, my actual official title would actually be, and no one ever uses it, I, I am, in, in fact, the expert team lead for the Agility Practice Centre of Expertise. My God. Try fitting that onto a business card. And <laughs> yeah, right. So, cost your fortune with all the letters. Otherwise known as? Otherwise known as an Agile Practice Lead. Right. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> but easier to get your head around. So... What does that mean then? And we don't need to talk about the, the organization necessarily specifically, but what does it mean to be the Agile Practice Lead? So, I mean, I can't say that I do a wonderful job, but the job that I do is actually coaching coaches and helping um, leaders understand how they impact the areas that they work with. Right. And are, you, are you essentially building agile capability for the business or is that the coaches beneath you? Um, it's actually, I consider it kind of a bit of a mixed bag of both. So I, I coach across tribes and across leaders as well, as do my coaches. Yeah, right. Um, so as the business begins to evolve and the, the, the agile maturity is uplifted through you being there and your coaches being out in the business, how does your role evolve and, and sort of, what, what comes next for both you and the business? So at the moment, we're in an area where we've really just looked after delivery, which for us is um, from concept, from an idea in someone's head somewhere in the world through to in market. So the change aspect of, of an organization. Mm. Um, that includes business as well as technology. But what it doesn't include is things like um, quote to cash in the sales part of the world and the operational customer and life cycle because they're two aspects of the, of the business that we haven't made any real change to as yet. Um, we have in other parts of our global organization and they've had reasonable success in some, in some parts and catastrophic failures in the other, right. the normal journey for any organization. Um, but in general, they're more successful than not. And we've not yet moved to those areas because we need to actually solidify just how we work in the delivery space because the reality is that transformation and change takes time. And we actually, and the sad thing about financial services is you turn over leaders quite regularly. And so there's a whole new raft of people to educate, influence, and help reach their potential on a fairly regular basis. So we have some leaders that have been around since the, the first transformation in 2019, but it's a very small group by comparison to yeah, the right. bulk of people. And so it, is, is it therefore then less about the next iteration of an agile transformation and more about making sure that people who are coming through the business are aligned? Yeah. So at the moment, I, I'd say we're in that process of trying to embed the changes that we tried to make. Ah, I see. That makes and, sense. And, and I think that's common... I, I remember reading once that the, the great failure of most transformations is declaring success way too early. And I think that it resonates with me because I think most organizations, because transformation is tiresome, it's difficult. So we do race to this point in time. We go, right, we've reached some date. And the only thing that dictates that we've actually had success is we reached the date, even though we know how time works. We're always going to reach that date. The only way we could have avoided it was to all die. We didn't all die. Now we have transformed. Uh, and so we declare that, you know, it's 
it's midnight on the 1st of April, therefore we have now transformed. Well, yeah, that's you know, kind of right. <laughs> all we've done is, is quite often change structures. We've educated some people. We're in, the, in that phase of hoping that we build a better place. Um, it takes time, though, to gel and you change people over. Yeah. Um, there's always the issue of people arrive in every organisation with a history. And sometimes that history can kind of work against business agility. Sometimes it can work for it. Mm. It's really hard to tell. Mm. And, it, and it's really not about what the actual history was. They might turn up with an attitude that says, I really want to embrace this change. Or they might turn up with a history that when they have done this elsewhere and it's worked really well, but they, for whatever reason, they don't want to embrace this change. Yeah, yeah. And so you do have to work with every kind of animal under the planet when you're an agile coach because you do have to kind of gauge well where are they at what what are they bringing to the table what are their expectations uh, I mean that's got to be quite tricky right well but if you think about it that's the role of leadership in any organization as well mm. so every leader has to always navigate who are these people they're leading what are what do they think what do they feel um, what do they bring to the table where is their biases? What am I getting as a leader? Yeah. And from an agile coaching perspective, we work with leaders and with people that are being led. And, and the reality is that we deal with those two coins. Yeah. Yeah. And so for those people who are listening, who are perhaps what we would call up and comers yep. in the agile space, perhaps they want to move into an agile coaching role. Maybe they've had a little bit of a taste or they've seen it going on around them. Yep. What do you think it takes to become a really good agile coach? Um, funnily enough, the, the one thing that I um, have always said to every new agile coach is the one thing you have to learn is to unlearn and to be resilient. What do you mean by unlearn? So if you think about our normal journey through life, agile is a concept that arose largely in the sort of mid 90s through people looking at what was working in some fairly discreet software development organizations. And from that, that's grown into lots of other areas. If we look at lean coming out of Toyo manufacturing, they're, they're quite discreet areas that have now been applied in a much broader hmm. context. But most of us haven't worked in any of those places. Most of us grew up and, and have worked through organizations where the person that influenced us probably had no knowledge of any of these things. Yeah. Um, we will we will have favoured people because we thought that their approach suited us. And so we learn these we learn these kind of automatic behaviors where we want shortcuts to everything. Our lives are busy, there's so much information. So what we want to do is to have a quick response. And so for things that seem like they're the same, we want to respond in the same way. But from an agile adoption, if we're trying to change, those automated responses that are built into us from our previous history are not always useful. And so as an agile coach, you've got to try to unlearn some behaviors because you're going to help other people unlearn. Because people don't turn up to work to suck. Um, the reality is everyone turns up to, up, up to work to do a good job. Hmm. And, and it's it's kind of on every organization to help them do that best job. But often they bring with them baggage and behaviors that come from a previous organization or a previous leader or, or a previous colleague, and that becomes their automatic response. And we kind of tolerate it. 
agile coaches can't afford to tolerate those automated responses that are not useful. Yeah, got you. All right. So on the, the ability to unlearn, um, what are the kind of skills or attributes would you highlight as being really important? As I say, the other thing I talk about is resilience. Because mm. the, the reality is that um, I've been really lucky that people have thought I was a good agile coach, probably never for good reasons. Um, I've probably done a better job with people who don't like me as an agile coach than yeah, I have yeah. with people who have. Um, but the reality isn't, and that's the nature of the job, is that you've got to have conversations with people about behaviour in the moment that they're not going to like. And they may change over time, but they may well not appreciate the conversation at the time. Sure. And so resilience is that ability to just get up in the morning and know that sometimes you're going to have to say something to someone who you genuinely admire, you like them, you think they're very good at what they do, and you're going to have to take them down by saying, look, this this discussion, I noticed that one of the things you said was this, did you actually think about the impact of this on the people you were talking to at the time? And what was the actual outcome you were trying to achieve from this? Because what I observed was it was quite different. Now, that's not an easy conversation with people who sure. are highly skilled, very intelligent, have good quality careers behind them, that are looking at, hang on, I do this all the time. But, yeah, but you may have been successful for many aspects. This is just not one of them, or at yeah, least yeah. I don't believe that to be the case. That makes sense, yeah. That makes sense. Um, and... What types of backgrounds, and you're an interesting person to ask this question too, given your background, but what types of backgrounds do you think traditionally would lead somebody to being an agile coach? Or, or is there a traditional route? And, and, and I, there might be, but it's never been my kind of mechanism for hiring. Hmm. So in general, um, I think that Agile coaches need diversity in background. Um, the team I work with are very diverse in background. We have some people from software, some people from risk, some people from finance, some people from marketing. Um, the reason being that you need a broad view. And so there's no individual that I know of that has that really broad view. And so from an agile coach perspective, I look for people who are passionate about other people's success, who care about helping people, who probably are less wed to climbing the ladder um, because it's really hard as an agile coach because you can often put yourself in the forefront rather than yes. stand behind a leader and push them forward. You can often jump in front of them and say, look at the leader, um, which is not coaching. That's I'm not sure what that is, but it does happen a bit. Yeah. <laughs> and so I do look for people with that sort of tendency towards humility, a deep caring for the people that they coach, and a desire to see both the people they coach and the organisation they're coaching in succeed. So less of a... So you're, you're, you're almost looking for certain behaviours, certain styles. Much more so. Certain ways of thinking. That, and, and so, and, and this is a tricky thing that I face as a recruiter. Obviously, those things don't necessarily come across on a CV, right? No, they don't. Those are the, the things that you start to explore in discussion. And yeah. so that, at that initial point where somebody may well have all of those qualities, at what point do you pick their CV or, you know, what helps you to define between a good CV and a bad CV? So there are, for me, there are some trite little cues. So when I see people talking heavily about what they have done, 
um, and quoting more more about what actions they've taken mm-hmm. rather than about what the people they've worked with have done, what the organisation uh. they've worked with has done. Because um, you see some good coaching CVs where people talk about their influence on an outcome rather than them being responsible for an outcome. Right. That's really interesting. So, in fact, that's something I need to bear in mind because I always advise, and maybe in the coaching space, this is there's a nuance here, but in more traditional delivery roles, um, we would tend to say we we want you to show what your individual contribution to that outcome was. And yeah. if you want to be talking about the I and not the we, but there's yeah. certainly a distinction then for a coach and you're dead right. It's a subtle thing, but you, you're interested in what the people who have been coached have been able to achieve as a result yeah. of the coaching, right? Yeah. And so we do look for the, the we in a, in a, in a CV, uh-huh. not the I. Okay. Um, we want to see that people are, associate themselves with other people, not just with their own contribution. Yeah, brilliant. That's really good it's advice. A very different role. Yeah, sure. What's next? And we, we kind of touched on this before, but what's next in in the evolution of agile? Is it is it always going to be agile, or is there going to be something else in the way that agile has come off the waterfall? <laughs> where where are we heading? Well, the whole thing is that that when we reach where we're heading, we won't have yet recognised it, and someone will have to invent a new term for it. But if you think about it, no, no one sort of sat down and said, well, we're currently doing traditional waterfall anything. No one, that wasn't a word anyone yeah, ever yeah, said. Yeah. You had to invent agile to have waterfall. And so in order to have the next thing, we won't know what it's called, but it'll look back and say, oh, that's that agile thing that was around before. Yeah, that's yeah, that yeah. old-fashioned agile thing. Um, because that's the nature of, of, of progress. The reality is that... Agility kind of is, is a bit of a stale term in many ways. But if we think about it's very much associated with the delivery of things. But businesses are not just deliverers of things. Um, businesses are much more complex than that. Businesses need to make money. They need to serve their community. They need to serve their customers. They need to serve their shareholders. They also need to serve their employees. Mm. And I think that the movement will evolve more towards those aspects and also serving the planet. Like we know that people are becoming more conscious of the damage that organizations can do and not. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I think that as whatever comes next, we'll try to embrace the concept of actually reducing these frictions between the different aspects of a business and, and creating more of a, an organization that is capable of balancing across what is actually almost unbalanceable making money serving a community serving shareholders employees and protecting a planet i hope so it's going to be hard but that's probably what it needs to be do you think that'll feel like a paradigm shift or will it just be an incremental difficult to notice transition to be successful it probably needs to be a paradigm shift because one of the problems with change is we often say oh you know we don't want too much change but if there's not enough change, status quo is really powerful. Mm. It's, it, it's like gravity. You have to reach a certain speed to break away from it. And if you don't do enough change, you just gravitate back to the status quo. It doesn't ever stick. So, And if you think about agile and where it's successfully adopted, it's because it's quite different. If it's not quite different, it doesn't ever stick because it's there's no incentive and there's no recognition that we've moved you get up in the morning and and quite often and i have this discussion quite regularly with people is that 
in Agile, there's no term requirement. So we have lots of other terms for lots of other things that have similar sorts of meanings. But at the very heart of the word is requirement means that it must be done. Mm. It's required. Well, we don't have a it must be done anywhere in the Agile delivery of anything. We have the it's a user story, so it's negotiable. It's a feature. It's negotiable. It's an epic or a saga. It's negotiable. The outcome is the negotiable bit. But the very word requirement says that it's not negotiable. It's required. And yet we're often treated to people who are new into agile organizations, bringing with them, oh, so what we need is better requirements. It's like, oh, we don't have any requirements. (laughs) (laughs) So that's going to be quite difficult for us. But it's a constant struggle with these these sort of terms that permeate. And words actually matter much more than people like to admit. I think you're right. How we phrase things is really important. I mean, if you think of the word but and the word why, and they're two words that I coach coaches never to use. Because if you think about the word but, it means that everything that, you, that, you, that you've said prior to this, you've just disregarded. Yeah. I've heard everything you've said but. Mm-hmm. And now I'm going to tell you something completely different. It's like an apology that includes a but. Yeah. Same thing, right? Yeah. And that's the thing. And so but is a really terrible word. And yet it's a people use it all the time yeah. and don't recognize how triggering it is for the person hearing it that, I spent all this energy wanting to be heard. You, you've now played back that you've heard what I've said, and now you're disregarding it by saying, but, and now I'm going to tell you this whole new thing. <laughs> yeah. It's incredibly invasive for people. And the word why, for some reason in the English language, the word why carries so much blame with it. If I say, why did you do that? It's very different to, to me saying, so what, what led you to decide to take that on? And they're very different, triggering words, and yet they're just words. Yeah. But they do have meaning, and they do trigger in different ways. And a lot of what leadership is about is is learning to use language in a way that actually motivates and propels people to be truthful and honest and and give you as a leader a good understanding of what's truly going on rather than what you just want to hear. Yeah, of course. I guess you have to to create an environment whereby... There's a, there's a two-way street of com- there's a two-way street in terms of how you communicate and that you should be able to feed back to leadership yeah. in a in a confident way without feeling as though you're going to be you know dismissed or put down or yeah. and, and, and I think most people are now aware of the term psychological safety and and mm. the concepts behind it but it's actually hard to practice because most of us have these automated responses where when we're under pressure we push that pressure down there's a terrible tendency, I feel, for people to talk about driving change, driving an outcome. And I usually say to people, driving for me is like a bus. There's exactly one driver on a bus. What's everyone else called? Passengers. And if you've got a system where you have to drive people, you're just creating a whole bunch of passengers. Yeah. And so systems need to be working where people drive themselves, they're they're self-motivated, they're interested in what the purpose is, they're interested in what the work is, they know why they're doing something, what the benefit is of doing it, and how to make decisions on a day-by-day basis. We kind of lose sight of the fact, like, we're forever greeted by the idea that decisions are made at different levels, but the reality is the people who make real decisions are the doers. They're on the shop floor every day. They're making decisions that no one ever sees. Yeah, brilliant. It's great insight. As part of what we're doing in season 
two, we have asked, so we, we're going to ask every guest, um, and I think this was ripped off somebody else's podcast, perhaps Die Over CEO, every guest that he has on that show leaves a question for the next guest to answer. Um, and my colleague Craig has kicked us off, and now it doesn't always necessarily it doesn't have to be about agility or project delivery. It might be something random. It can be anything. Um, and so we've got a question from somebody that my colleague Craig spoke with a couple of weeks ago, um, yep. preemptively knowing that the podcast was coming. So the question is, do you think the Sydney CBD will remain a ghost town next year? Well, that's interesting because I actually live in the heart of the Sydney D CBD. Mm. So I get to experience it. And I can tell you that for it to be a ghost town next year, it would need to be a ghost town today. And it's not a ghost town today. It's really come back to life, hasn't it? Yeah. So I was out and about in my local area here, um, going through Chinatown and um, down towards Darling Harbour, and it was packed on Sunday and Monday. Not surprising on Anzac Day, but Sunday, loads of people around. Saturday, loads of people around. It was a long weekend. There'd be good reasons for people to still be on school holidays and trundling back late yeah, into yeah. the world. But they weren't. When I go out and about, and I tend to go out and socialise a lot, there are much more people around than there were six months ago. So to say, will it be a ghost town next year? Something catastrophic would have to happen for that to be the case. Yeah, I agree. Mind you, we've seen that something like that can happen, right? Yeah, that's right. We, um, that's why I won't say it won't be. But <laughs> yeah, based yeah. on what it is today, unlikely. All right, I think you're right. I'm probably I'm going to have to put you on the spot here because I didn't um, I didn't prep you for this. But is there a question? that you would leave, and you can take your time to think about this, but a question mm -hmm. that you would leave for the next guest who's coming on the podcast. What would you do differently today than you did a month ago? So not very long ago. We've had a little bit of time to reflect. Nice, thank you for that. I reckon we could sit here and talk absolutely all afternoon. You've got a very nice way of explaining things, and I really think it will resonate with anybody who listens. And so I really want to thank you because, um, you know, th this is kind of an upfront part of your day, part of your time that you've given to me and to the people who listen to the podcast. And I'm really appreciative of that because I know you're a busy chap. Um, well, the funny thing is I, I like to talk about things. I like to talk to people. I like to talk to you. You know that. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm a perennial talker about things. And my role is to talk to people. Like, the, true, the reality yeah. is that I, I would love to pretend that I'm some great doer of things. I don't do bugger all. <laughs> I'm not a doer. I, I'm someone who helps other people do you're influencing through your words right yeah and so i talk to people i provide guidance i ask questions and i listen i have no other great tool of trade i have two ears one mouth i hope that i'm smart enough now to recognize that i should use the two ears more often than the one mouth because that's how they how they created i've got two of them so i should do twice as much listening as talking i ask a lot of questions I listen to people. I try not to give too much advice because advice is not really what people want in general. People want to be heard. People want to be able to understand their own thoughts. And coaching is largely about helping people understanding their thoughts and helping them find their own solutions, not giving them solutions. And this is why you're a fantastic coach. 